First up, Peter, is it reasonable to believe in Old Testament prophets? Mm-hmm. So as usual with these talks, uh, 20 minutes to put to rest forever a very simple subject. Um, Of course, I'm not going to be able to do that, but I hope I can just sort of give a few pointers and indicators and uh, food for further thought, as it were. Um, Thinking about Old Testament morality and particularly how that reflects upon the character of God as portrayed uh, in the Old Testament vis-à-vis how he's portrayed in the New Testament. And sometimes people um, uh, draw uh, rather a sharp contrast uh, between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament uh, relative to the morality of those two books of, of Revelation as Christians see it. So on the one hand, you, know, you get verses like uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as examples to those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Or on the other hand, you have the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. On the one hand, you have, there is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. And on the other hand, you have, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. On the one hand, you have, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And on the other hand, you have the stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native, and you shall love him as yourself. Now, of course, all of the one-hand verses are from the New Testament, and all of the other-hand verses that I just read out are from the Old Testament. So you have to be a little bit wary of data picking, as the scientist might say, in this area. Uh, and and uh, sort of reading in, reading out of the text, what you're expecting uh, to see there in this area. Um, whether that uh, makes uh, the situation worse for you or better, considering new and old, I'll leave that to you. Is God different, morally speaking, in the Old Testament compared to the New Testament? Well... As a philosopher, I'm going to say, well, it depends what you mean by it. I want to sharpen up the question here a little bit. Was God himself different? Well, no. God uh, has a certain character, and that endures uh, consistently throughout time. But was God perceived and or presented to people differently, slightly at least? Well, yes, to a degree, I think we should say that that is the case. We had a little bit about hermeneutics, uh, reading out of text accurately uh, from Keith Fox last week. So if you want more on hermeneutics, go to Keith Fox's talk from last week. Um, Here are just a few of the same sort of points that he was making last week, which are, again, very relevant when you're getting into this kind of area, uh, considering relationships between wholes and parts. In particular, I'll look at reading the obscure in the light of the clear, interpreting through the person of Jesus for the Christian and how the new can reinterpret or qualify or indeed replace the old. And I'll I'll just focus on two of these in this talk. So looking at the relationship between wholes and parts, it would obviously, you know, if you go to Psalm 14, verse 1, uh, where it says, there is no God. So the Bible itself says God doesn't exist. So it's a good good verse for the atheists uh, amongst us. Um, 
Of course, I mean, you know, that would be a terrible, uh, 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 not to mention self-contradictory argument from authority to say, well, there you go, there's no God because the Bible says it. Um, but of course, when it says that in the context of the psalm, um, fools say in their hearts, there is no God, they're corrupt and their deeds are vile and there's no one who does good. Now, uh, again, you could take that out of context because some people are thinking they're bristling, thinking, good grief, you know, is Pete really saying the Bible is saying that all atheists are fools and all atheists are vile and corrupt? Well, in as much as every human is a sinner and we all tend to turn our backs upon God and pretend he's not there, um, I would include our atheist brethren and amongst uh, our number as well. But no, of course, it's not saying that specifically in the context. This is talking about people in that, in that nation who believe that there's a God, but turn their back on him in order to do evil, sort of put him out of their mind, saying, oh, you know, God's not going to care, he's not going to you know, take notice of little old me, I'm just going to do whatever the heck I like. Um, so in the context, again, it's very uh, crucial to reading what is it actually saying. But what goes for individual verses, I think clearly goes for whole books of the Bible. <coughs> So, you know, vanity of vanities, says the teacher. It's all vanity. Life is meaningless, it says in Ecclesiastes. Not only in that verse, but the, the general sense of life that you get from Ecclesiastes, even when you get to the end, and God's sort of brought back in a bit much, you, you sort of get the feeling that the writer of Ecclesiastes is basically saying, yeah, you know, you've got to give God his due, but don't bother being overly religious about it. You know, <laughs> uh, just try and have a nice life, and that's all you can really expect, and who knows what happens when you're dead, but I suppose you, you better take God into account. You'll probably f- feel nicer if you do. And it's not a terribly sort of ringing, enthusiastic endorsement of religion by the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, but it's nevertheless, that's there in the Bible for a reason to tell us something, to tell us something about even religiosity versus living relationship with God. Uh, tell us something about um, living under a restricted concept of who God is versus the fullness of the revelation that the rest of the books, books of the Bible together give you. And what goes for individual verses and whole books goes for whole testaments. I believe we have as Christians to read the Old Testament in the light of the New. And the New can reinterpret or qualify or indeed replace the Old. So Paul Copan in his book, which I recommend to you, is God a Moral Monster, points out that the Sinai legislation, you know, the Ten Commandments and so on, make a number of moral improvements without completely overhauling ancient Near East social structures and assumptions. If you compared the legal code of the Old Testament to the legal code of the surrounding cultures, I know which culture you'd pick to live in. It would be the Jewish one rather than the surrounding pagan ones. Nevertheless, God meets his people where they are while seeking to show them a higher ideal in the context of ancient Near Eastern life, which was pretty hard and short and dirty. As we move through the scriptures, we witness a moral advance, suggests Copan, a movement towards reinstating the Genesis ideals from the creation account. So we have in Matthew, um, Matthew recording Jesus saying, it's been said, and then quoting from Deuteronomy from the Old Testament, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. 
better I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. So there's Jesus saying the Old Testament law gave a, a socially protective provision governing how you should conduct divorces, that you can't just do it willy-nilly, you've got to have an official certificate and so on, we're going to, we're going to put some protections around this, institu- this institution that's going to happen. But, he says, but that's not God's ideal, pointing back to Genesis, the creation accounts. Um, he says, uh, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it has not always been this way. So this is permissible, but it's not the ideal. Uh, and he was saying people had, had turned the permissible into the idea that, well, that's the, that's the rules then, so it's fine then. And he's saying, no, it's not that that's the rules, so it's fine, it's, that's the rules, but it's not fine. It's just better than being that way and not having any rules. The law can be seen as a self-consciously temporary arrangement, in a sense. This is uh, from Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It won't be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel. After that time, I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Talking about going again from that idea of a sort of, I suppose you could describe it as a sort of religiosity to a more personal relationship with that God. And indeed moving from uh, a sort of a, a marriage between God and the nation, irrespective of the hearts and minds of the individuals within that nation, to a marriage between God and his church, the bride, as described in Revelation at the end of the Bible, which is crucially dependent upon the heart and mind relationship between the individuals who make up that bride the new, of the new covenant. So there these two covenantal relationships have very crucial um, uh, development within them. And hence, I think, uh, Charles Hodge, famous theologian, made a lot of sense when he talked about the, the notion of progressive revelation, saying the progressive character of divine revelation is recognised in relation to all the great doctrines of the Bible and so on. We have, as I say, one God but two covenants and two different contexts of relationship. This socio-political marriage differs from the covenant in the, the new covenant in my blood that Jesus talks about at the, uh, at the Last Supper. Nevertheless, there are plenty, of course, Old Testament passages that we could look at, and we don't have time to, that would raise things that to our modern eyes would certainly seem strange, perplexing, and including morally perplexing. How should we approach them? Well, over time, one thing I've I've found is that learning about the original cultural context often helps. It doesn't necessarily get rid of the problem, but it seems to alleviate the problem somewhat. And I'm encouraged by the fact that I get more understanding of these difficulties over time as I investigate them. I think the thing to do with these sort of uh, worries about this sort of issue is not to try and bury them under the carpet where they can fester, 
but to uh, keep a a roving brief upon them and to do some research and investigation and read a few commentaries and read some some background and and so on. And I think as you do that, you'll also find um, that the pieces begin to start slotting into place at least. Let's take the issue of Israel at war. Uh, when Israel's been liberated from Egypt and then you have the, the exodus and then going into the promised land and we have Israel then at war with various different tribal, pagan tribal groups who are already in that promised land. These enemies were a, both a political and a spiritual threat to Israel and that meant a threat to God's plan of revelation to the whole world, to bless the whole world, including the pagans, the Gentiles, through the nation of Israel. Let's focus on the Canaanite tribal group. Canaanite religious practices included child sacrifice. And this is William uh, Blake's Uh, sketch of uh, the Canaanites sacrificing children to the flames. But here is an archaeological, um, archaeologically relevant find. This is a a statue, a cultic statue of the god Baal. You remember the priests of Baal uh, from the Old Testament. This is from the uh, 13th century BC, this one. Now, I think this is quite interesting to think about in our modern context of... um, of intervention within foreign nations for humanitarian purposes. What would be the ruckus at the United Nations if one of the nations of the world decided that, that, that they were going to institute a, a, a national practice of child sacrifice every time we build a new building? We want to put the foundation stone of our building on top of one of our kids that we've killed. Okay, the outcry for intervention, and what's that going to mean? Of course, it's going to mean everything's going to be you know, fluffy and roses, and we'll just go in there and give people ice cream, and they'll change their minds. And no, yeah. what, what ends up in some of these situations is very messy, and of course you get un- unplanned outcomes and so on. And yet, even knowing that, people will sometimes in certain instances say, Surely they've got. To, they ought to do. Why aren't they doing anything about this? Well, God didn't do anything about it for four hundred years. There is a prophecy against the Canaanites, a warning against the Canaanites to change their minds about God and about their religious practices. And God says, "But I'm. But their time. You know, their, their sins are not f- sort of full up yet. The time has not come for this to to, to be dealt with." Um, and it's perhaps almost more of a problem that time when he's not dealing with, with evil than when he does deal with it. And when he does deal with it, people misdescribe it. It tends to get misdescribed as things like the slaughter of the Canaanites or it was genocide. It was not. It was explicitly a driving out in the land. If you go to uh, Joshua chapter 3, you'll talk, see about it talking about driving out Uh, on the land. In the ancient Near East, it was common to exaggerate claims about victory in battle as well. This is cultural context that's crucial. So, for example, Joshua 10.20. This is very interesting. So, Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely. But a few survivors managed to reach their their fortified cities, which is 
hang on, I thought we just defeated them completely. How come there are any survivors and fortified cities left? In the same verse. This is just the way you spoke about victory in those times. You can compare it with the cultures around as well, the way uh, the Egyptians talked about their victories and so on. This is um, Egyptologist Professor Kitchen in his book on the reliability of the Old Testament. He says, the type of rhetoric in question was a regular feature of military reports in the second and first millennia. In the latter 15th century, Thutmosis III, the Egyptian pharaoh, could boast the numerous army of Menotti was overthrown within the hour, annihilated totally, like those now non-existent. Whereas, in fact, the forces of Matnini lived to fight many another day. <laughs> we know that from the record. Um, Meshna, king of Moab, boasted, Israel has been utterly perished for always in about 840 um, BC. Um, it's a bit premature, you might think, considering um, Israel seemed to live on. So that's the kind of frame of reference that when you're reading some of these battle reports in the Bible, you have to read them against. It's not that they're, they're, they're inaccurate by modern standards of reporting, but they're not inaccurate by ancient standards of reporting when you read them in context. So take the language of all men and women at Jericho, for example. Uh, Paul Copan says it's a stereotypical expression for the destruction of all human life in the fort, presumably composed entirely of combatants. The term city, we're translating it city ear, reinforces this idea. Jericho, I, many other Canaanite cities were mainly used for government buildings, while the rest of the people, including the, you know, women and children, lived in the surrounding countryside. That's an ag- agrarian population. All of the archaeological evidence indicates that no civilian populations existed at Jericho, or Ai, or the other cities mentioned in Joshua. So, for example, if you pay attention to the text of Joshua, is Joshua 6... Um, Joshua is talking to the people before the battle, and he says, uh, then, then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I've delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. And yes, they are to destroy everyone in the fort, in the city, but the only civilians who are mentioned was Rahab, who probably ran the, the inn, there, because she sheltered the spies, Rahab and her family, as civilians, are let go. Which is interesting. It might also be mentioned that any difficulties we have with the, the morality of the portrayal of God or his rules in the Old Testament, they are specific examples of the problem of evil. We're talking about specific examples of the problem of evil here. But the general problem of evil as, a, as an argument against belief in God has uh, seen better days within the philosophy of religion community. The old way of putting the argument, the idea that there's some sort of contradiction between God and evil, is generally considered uh, dead. Uh, Michael Bergman, for example, reports that there's a nearly unanimous agreement amongst both theistic and non-theistic philosophers of religion that the logical version of the argument from evil doesn't work. And here's just one quote on the argument that atheists have tended to then shift to in more recent times, saying, OK, evil doesn't contradict God, but it sure 
points, it's points against him. It's evidence against God, even if it's knock, knock, knock down evidence against God. Well, this is atheist Michael Tooley from his recent debate on the issue with Alvin Plantinga. And Tooley says that the, this evidential argument from evil is highly controversial, even if it can be shown that the evils that are found in the world render the existence of God unlikely, on their own, that is, it might still be the case that the existence of God is not unlikely, all things considered. For perhaps the argument from evil can be overcome by appealing to either positive evidence in support of God, or to the idea that the belief in the existence of God is just properly basic in people's religious experience and so on. So, uh, Tooley, who's, who's one of the most sophisticated advocates of the evidential argument from evil, himself says, yeah, but it's not the whole story, even if you think that it works, and that's controversial, um, which, again, is interesting. So, there's some, some specific points and some general points, and let me recommend literature to you. Paul Copan's book, Is God a Moral Monster?, goes into a lot of cultural background detail on a lot of these kind of issues in the Old Testament. And there are a couple of uh, articles that are freely available on the EPS, that's the Evangelical Philosophical Society, EPS website, uh, called Is Yahweh a Moral Monster? and Yahweh Wars and the Canaanites, if you're interested in those particular issues. Hopefully I'm on time. (laughs) Just under 10 minutes for questions. Anybody like to kick off? The example you gave at the beginning uh, with the two different sets of verses, could you yeah. kind of do the way around if you wanted to? Um, I think I could have. Uh, I, of course, you, you could have done. The, the, the point I'm making about, about data picking is it's, it's very easy to to kind of see what you're expecting when I read those verses out to you unless you already knew where they were from I, I would be prepared to bet as it were that a lot of people in the room thought oh yes those are, those are obviously Old Testament verses because they're all you know, wrath and judgment and so on and these are obviously New Testament verses because they're all about love and forgiveness and so on well yes <laughs> yes but I was only able to trick you because I met your background expectations of what Old Testament and New Testament verses about God and morality were going to be. So I'm, I'm, I'm highlighting that thereby the fact that we have these preconceptions that don't necessarily match the reality, or at the very least that the reality might be a little bit more nuanced and complicated than our preconceptions about it are. That was the, the point I was making. Yeah. So if we're talking about um, revelation over time and Mm. New Testament, why don't we just not use the Old Testament anymore? Right, yeah, that was a good question. And and some uh, Christians early on wanted to do things precisely like that. But the church, I think, decided rightly, and my argument would be because Jesus is the fulfilment of the Old Testament expectations of the Messiah. And yes, through that lens of Jesus, we do get the the authority, as it were, to to do some reinterpreting. 
to, to read parts of the Old Testament in ways so that the, the Jews on the whole at the time of Jesus didn't because he fulfilled those prophecies about the Messiah in, in some somewhat unexpected ways. He seemed to invert the idea, for example, that the Messiah, when he come, came, the Jews were thinking, they were focusing on the prophecies about the Messiah, is going to bring, he's going to be a king in the line of David, he's going to bring justice, he's going to, uh, it's all about, going to be about the, the nation of Israel, missing out on the stuff in the Old Testament about blessing the Gentiles through Abraham, and it's all going to be about wrath and judgment on the Romans, and then, of course, there are those verses about him being a suffering servant and stuff, but, you know, that's obviously not relevant to our situation. Whereas Jesus came along and he said, hello, guys, I'm going to be a suffering servant. I'm going to let the Romans kill me. And then in the second coming, I'll come back at the last day at the judgment, and then I'm going to sort out the world. So, <laughs> um, but because Jesus is nonetheless fulfilling the Old Testament... We get the understanding of God's revelation. We only get the fuller, proper understanding of what's going on in the Old Testament from the New. But because we have the New, we can, we can, we can get that idea of the progressive revelation and so on. And see how God is acting through history and get a fuller picture than if, we, if we, you just had the, the New Testament of things. And I think that's why... The original gospel writers, when they were writing the gospels, even to to non-Jewish um, uh, Gentile audiences, uh, were still keen to talk about Jesus as the Messiah and to explain about the Old Testament prophecies about him uh, and so on, rather than simply sort of saying, "Okay, Jesus is, is God and He's come down, and let's not talk about the Old Testament." How do you how do you think about the New Covenant? that Jesus makes at the Last Supper without an understanding of what the old covenant was. Um, so, by contrast, I, I think things like that are important to, for our understanding. Yeah. Does the New Testament go against anything in the, in the Old Testament that has anything to do with the, the right to own slaves? Right, yeah, this is a very, this is again, a very interesting, very big issue. I think a couple of things I, I can say about that. First of all, when you talk about owning, owning slaves, I think our modern mind immediately goes to American black slavery. That, that's what we think of slavery. Slavery is um, not having a choice about it and being, being forced into unpaid labour um, and possibly taken out of your, your country in order to, to do so. Um, what you have to remember is that about, at any one time, about two-thirds of the, the citizens of Rome were slaves. Uh, and you could deliberately make yourself a slave, and you got paid, and when you saved up enough money, you could buy your release, or you could choose to stay on working with that family, and often slaves got adopted into families, and so on. It, it's kind of the social security net of its time, in a time when they hadn't thought of the idea of social security nets. So you said more like a butler than a slave. So it's yeah, it's more. Like, it's like think of think of um, back in back in Egypt, uh, Joseph is a slave, and he ends up as the number two dude in the kingdom. <laughs> he's like the top civil servant of his day, but he's a slave. And does that go so, as far as to, you're allowed to beat your slaves on the day? Ah, well, no, no. <laughs> <Yeah>. I think, 
uh, again, some, uh, you'd have to take them on a context by context, but certainly you've got the overarching theme of all humans are made in the image of God and have the dignity of God. You should love your neighbour as yourself, treat even the stranger who is with you as yourself. But of course, you yourself might very well be a slave, or only slavery was different, but then, yeah, you have the overarching theme of the dignity of man and, and love your neighbour and so on. Uh, and then we get developments like Paul, and there's a, there's a little letter from Paul in the New Testament that he wrote on behalf of a slave who'd run away from, from his master, who was a Christian, and Paul writes back to the master, and yeah, he, he's not at that time keen to, take, to over, overturn the entire social structure of the empire, because he does other things in his mind, but he does also say things about treating this brother as a brother in the Lord. Mm. What do you think about the want to run away? Oh, yeah. I, you, you could speculate all sorts of... Yeah, maybe the guy was being mistreated. Um, if he was, Paul certainly says to, you know, don't mistreat him, treat him as a brother in the Lord. You know, love him as you yourself would want to be treated in that situation, in that social standing, and so on. So I think that the seeds of the, the levers of the overturn of slavery as we think of it is, is sown in both the Old and the, and the New Testament. But you do have to appreciate the, the, the cultural situation that's being talked about at the time rather than reading into it our, our, our imagery of what's being talked about again. Okay, thank you. Yeah. I think time is gone on that. We'll, we'll, we'll move on, but you'll be around to answer yeah, the yeah. questions. We can carry on after this. Cut off in the middle, we have a chance to...